All right, thank you for those who have been praying for our time together today. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, make your way to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And if you find yourself here today without a Bible, we have some extra hard copies on the back, and you can keep that as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. All right, again, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll be going through the end of chapter 8. By way of reminder, to bring us up to speed, We've been seeing so far that the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses preached to Israel right as they're preparing to finally enter the promised land. Moses' sermons work to apply the law of God to the people of God so that they would flourish and glorify God to the nations. All right, that brings us up to speed to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And before we begin, I'm curious, because this is what our text is going to press us with today. What are some of the most important questions you've worked through in your life? Maybe from like one end of the spectrum, like existential philosophers over the century kind of stuff. What is the meaning of life? Is life more of a comedy or a tragedy? Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, while still very important, How much cheese would Olive Garden put on your salad or your pasta, like if you never said stop? Well, where's that stopping point, right? Have you ever pondered these deep philosophical questions? Whatever questions you've worked through in your life, in our text today, we're going to be pressed again to consider one of the most important and life-giving questions there is, and that is, why does God love his people? And again, I wonder, how much have you set that question before you before? How far have you dived into the depths of exploring that question? Why does God love his people? And what is the bedrock to your answer to that question? So please follow along with me now. I'm going to read aloud Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. This is God's word. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer before we begin. If you would please bow your head and agree with me in prayer together. Father, we need to hear from you today. We praise you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. I pray that you will center us today, Lord, with whatever we brought with us here on this Sunday. Center us in your character. 
We need to be reminded and refreshed and revived with your great love today. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, amen. Here's where we're going to be going today. Three points from Deuteronomy 7 and 8. First question again, why does God love his people? Second question is, how are God's people to respond? And the third question is, how is this all possible? So first, why does God love his people? Again, look down at the Bible in front of you. What we're going to see together today is not Mike up here making this up. It is God's word in front of you in a thus saith the Lord kind of way, okay? So have the Bible open in front of you. Look at verses 6 through 8 in chapter 7. Let's follow along the flow and logical connections and implications we see in these verses. Verses 6 through 8. What do they say? Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. We should ask, okay, why? Next, verse 6 continues. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Why? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why did God choose them? Why did God set his love on them? Look at what comes next. Look at verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. So why does the Lord love his people? Verse 8 concludes, because the Lord loves you. Doesn't that feel kind of like a circular kind of argument? Like, did we really get the answer to the questions why we were asking? Think about it like this. Why didn't God choose Israel here in the verses in front of you? Look at verse 7 again. It wasn't because God's people were awesome and huge and crushing life, was it? They were weak and small, and yet he set his love on them. In the New Testament, this same wave keeps coming. We see the same reality about God's choosing to love his people about who believes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself says in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or a little bit later in John, John chapter 15, the start of verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or later on, 1 John 4.19, my son Owen answered this question to me last night. Praise the Lord for this. Owen, why do we love God? Answer, because he first loved us. It plays out like this. Acts chapter 13, Paul's preaching a sermon. He's preaching it to Jews and Gentiles alike, right? For gospels for all the peoples. And then you move down to verse 48 in Acts chapter 13. The Gentiles hear the gospel as the good news, which it is. And here's what happens. Acts 13 verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Again, the order is really important, just like in Deuteronomy 7, just like here in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, it doesn't say as many who believed were appointed. It says as many who were appointed believed. One flows from the other. 
So just have Deuteronomy 7 as backdrop in your mind, okay? Listen to how 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 puts it about this dynamic we're seeing. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When I just read that, did you see yourself in that text? How many of us could have raised our hands? Not many were powerful, Not many are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of noble birth. Like, do you see what's happening here? Same flow from Deuteronomy 7. It lands in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and across God's word. What does all of this mean? It means that the drumbeat of the Bible, again, across the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that if you believe, if you are one of God's people, it's because God took the initiative, and opened your heart by the Holy Spirit to believe in him. God took the first action. Because if God didn't do that, you wouldn't choose him. Whether that's today or one million days from now, you would continue to be bent inward on yourself and choose yourself and choose yourself to be your own savior. It takes God opening your heart to see your need for him, to be his people. So that's the truth thread that's here in the Bible in front of you in Deuteronomy 7, and that's the through line that runs throughout the whole Bible. So why did God choose Israel here in Deuteronomy 7? Why did he set his love on them, it says? Because he loved them. Why did God love them? Just because he loves them. I hope you hear that. Do you see, do you feel, like do you taste how foundational and freeing that is? That the bottom line reason why God loves you, Christian, isn't in you. It's in him. And that's, again, really, really good news for us. So why does God love his people? Because it's who God is. His love flows from his character right? Like 1 John again, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. So to say God loves us just because he loves us, that's not saying that God loves in like a lukewarm kind of way, like in a begrudging kind of way, like he's being forced to love you. Maybe he loves you, but like, but I don't really like him. That's not what it's saying. God loves you just because he loves you And that's not impersonal, that's deeply, intensely personal, right? So we have to have a right understanding of what does it mean that God loves us just because he loves us. That's saying that God's love as the creator is so different than how we love as creatures, isn't it? Just like take a step back for a minute. Think about the loving relationships in your life and praise God for those, right? But in whatever relationships you have in your life, like just think about like the rules of engagement and how they function, whether it be in friendships or even in marriages, in the workplace, 
in some kind of way, whatever that relationship is, the person you love, spouse to your spouse, that person benefits you in some kind of way, right? Now contrast that briefly to what we've already seen here in Deuteronomy 7 and kind of a quick survey across the Bible. Contrast that to God's love. Our triune God is all-sufficient in himself, existing in perfect love for all of eternity past. He does not have a need. He is not loving you from a deficit. He doesn't love us to fill some need he has. Like God's not needy, okay? He is perfectly sufficient in love for all of himself, our triune God from beyond eternity past what your brain can't even begin to comprehend. God's love is so much greater than ours. I want us to feel the weight of what Deuteronomy 7 here is calling us to think about and consider about who God is and who we are in response to that. As a, as a way to help us, I read this recently. I hope it'll be helpful for you too. There was this uh, English poet. Her name was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. That means she's a really good poet, by the way, if she quotes three names, right? Can we all get an agreement, right? And she wrote this poem that talks to this kind of love that we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 7. The poem, the stanza I'm about ready to read to you, it was actually she wrote it to her husband and it was never intended to be published. And yet here we are, and I'm going to read it to you. Listen to what she says about the deepest kind of love and why it's the only kind of love that's certain. If thou must love me, let it be for naught, except for love's sake only. Do not say, I love her for her smile, her look, her way of speaking gently, for a trick of thought that falls in well with mine and certes brought a sense of pleasant ease on such a day. For these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee, and love so wrought may be unwrought so. Neither love me for thine own dears, dear pities wiping my cheeks dry. A creature might forget to weep who bore thy comfort long and lose thy love thereby. But love me for love's sake that evermore thou mayest love on through love's eternity." Did you hear it? Did you hear the through line and the drumbeat we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 7? The poem is saying that even if you love the closest person to you if you're married, even if you love them as much as you possibly can, you can't love them in the truest kind of way. If the foundational reason why Carrie loves me is, and don't ask me why she does, uh, is because of something that she like sees in me that she's attracted to, that thing inevitably is going to rot and perish. It's true in every love relationship, whether it's your looks or your wit, your character, whatever it is, that thing will go away. And if that's the thing that is the basis for your love, that's a pretty fickle kind of love, isn't it? And this poem speaks to the deepest desire in our hearts is a love for love's sake. Because that's the kind of love like we can never like grasp onto, but it's the love we're always seeking, isn't it? And just think about this again. Why does God love his people? Just because he loves us. Because his love overflows from his sufficiency 
and then it flows to meet our deepest need. Like, I hope you're kind of catching, we're in deep waters here, but these are the best waters about who our God is and why he loves his people. And this is really, really good news for us. The God that loved you because he loved you, because he loved you, because you didn't bring anything to the table but your need of him, he loves you just because he loves you. Again, when you really think about that, when you really press into it, that's the deepest need of your heart, isn't it? That's what our longing for true love points to. It's what your appetite for love was made to be satisfied in. You're made to be satisfied in the all-sufficient love of God. Because the love of God, when you think about it, it's, again, reverse engineer it. It's just traced back, back and back, beyond all comprehension, to the very center and character of the all-sufficient triune creator God, to the character of the God who created the galaxies. D.A. Carson said that God's love, listen to this, God's love emanates from his own character. It's not dependent on the loveliness of, of the loved. God loves because love is one of his perfections in perfect harmony with all his other perfections. Meditate on that this week. God's love is not based on the loveliness of the loved, but on from, flows from the character of who he is. So that means that God's love is as glorious and as expansive as God himself is. God's love really is like an ocean without shores and without bottom. You have to deal with that. You gotta do something with the kind of love Deuteronomy 7 is pointing us to. So if you're here today and you've entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, do you see how foundational and freeing the love of God is. There is nothing that you did or could do to earn this kind of love. There is nothing you can do or not do that will change God's love for you. God's love is set on his people from all eternity, again, from the God who created the furthest galaxies, that's where the love comes from, his love for his people. There's a deep comfort in, in that, isn't there? I was thinking this week, like this can kind of feel like theology stuff. You're like, okay, great, wins the quiz, Mike. But like, think about what this means in your life this week. Maybe even what you brought here to church with you this morning. There is no greater comfort you can come up with than that God loves you just because he loves you no matter what you're going through. And I really mean that. God loves you just because he loves you. That's a certain foundation for your identity. You build your identity on anything else other than that, it will ultimately fail you and disappoint you. Only the love of God's a foundation that will never, ever give out on you. Doesn't depend on your circumstances. Because if the locus of God's love was ultimately fixed, like on something in me or on something in you, Again, that would be a really fickle and fragile kind of love, wouldn't it? No matter how awesome you are, you're not as awesome as God. Because God's love, again, flows from his all-sufficiency, his eternal character. Creator God is saying he loves his people just 
because he loves them. He's in the heavens and he can do whatever he pleases and all that he does is good. And so he loves his people just because he loves them. And that changes everything. So Christian, I really mean this for you here today, my dear brother and sister in Christ. No matter what you're going through, God loves you. The God of all creation, the all-sufficient God loves you. He is for you and not against you. He has set his love on you. He loves you not because of your loveliness, not because of how great you did this week. He loves you because he's lovely, not because you are. He loves you just because he loves you. And to press us a little bit further, like what do you think, if you ever ponder this, what does that kind of love like feel like, right? What's that feel like? I think it feels really secure, doesn't it? Like really safe in a kind of way. It's really freeing. It frees you up to stop trying to earn or keep God's love by how awesome of a Christian you are. Does God love you less this week if you're five weeks behind in your Bible read-through plan? No, and praise God for that. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, there's one guy that's like, nope, I'm right on the day that I'm supposed to be. God loves you the same, brother or sister as well, okay? This kind of love that flows from the character of God, it feels like what you long for. It feels like the security you're made for. There's nothing that can move God off of setting his love on you because God is the source of his love for you. His love flows perfectly to you. Again, even if you don't love yourself, even if you've been racked with anxiety and depression lately, like you just can't get out of your own head and you're beating yourself up, does not change God's love for you, dear brother or sister. God loves us just because he loves us. God's love for his people. Think about it like this. God's love for his people does not have a prenup. He didn't meet with a lawyer ahead of time about God's people, okay? God is not looking for an exit strategy for his love with you or with his people corporately, with us as a local church. He is not looking for a relational upgrade and praise God for that. If you are one of God's people, God will love you to the very end of your life from now all the way through eternity He'll love you through the end of whatever trial or affliction you find yourself in right now. He'll love you to and through the end of all your fears. Like that's the kind of love that we're talking about that only is found in God. Because God's love flows from the glory and eternal foundations of his character. Like I hope you can taste a little bit of the glory that we're stepping into here in Deuteronomy 7. God loves you, Christian, just because he loves you. All right, a love like that demands a response, doesn't it? That brings us to our second emphasis. How are God's people to respond? Look up again at uh, verse six in chapter seven. How does it start? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. God's choosing love for his people has a purpose, doesn't it? It's to make them holy. 
The call for God's people to be holy here, just real quick, it flows from Exodus 19, when God says at Mount Sinai that Israel, listen to this, Exodus 19, Israel shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because God chose his people, they're to be what? They're to be holy. And again, the same idea is picked up in the New Testament and it expands the call for holiness of God's people for all of God's people, for from every tongue, nation, and tribe, all those who believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our call to worship passage today, 1 Peter 2, 9, picks up the ball from Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7, and it carries it to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Listen to what it says about who God's people are on this side of the cross, who we are as God's people on this side of the cross, and what we're to be about. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the theme here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7 and 8, there's this theme of, okay, this great love, how are we to respond? The second half of chapter 7 and all through chapter 8, this theme starts to move forward and develop because there are implication to God's great love for his people. Look down just real quick. Let your finger go down to verse 12 in chapter 7. What's it say? And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and steadfast love that he swore to his, your fathers. Then again, from all the way from there through the end of chapter eight, you're gonna see over and over again, if you spent time this week before the sermon or reflect on it this next week, you're gonna see the call for God's people to remember, to not forget six different times in the second half of seven, all the way through the end of chapter eight. And why is that? Because God's people are prone to forget like what verse three says in chapter eight, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus quoted those verses himself when he was tempted in the wilderness and Jesus remembered and applied them, didn't he? But we're gonna start to see God's people are called to remember. You're supposed to live by God's word. You're supposed to remember what God's done, but we're prone to forget. So the question hanging for us here in Deuteronomy, especially as we come up to chapter seven and eight, is will God's people remember? Will they remember as they move into the promised land? Will they remember what Moses is preaching to them and applying into their life? Are they going to remember it? Why are they told to remember? Because they're prone to forget because they needed to be reminded to be remembered, as Todd said so well last week. Just follow the train of thought, just real quick. I know we're like a rock skipping over water, but I'm trying to show you like the, the framing behind the chapters here, the argument of Deuteronomy 7 and 8. Look down in chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. What's it say? Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten 
and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be filled up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's people are to be holy, so they need to remember what God has done and who they are as a delivered people because of his love. That's the theme, the drumbeat that's carried all the way through the end of chapter eight. And just like, look at that connection real quick back in those verses in chapter eight. There's a connection as people, we're made of the same stuff this original audience was, aren't we? There's a connection between being prone to forget God when you're comfortable. You're prone to forget God's great deliverance for you and his great love when you don't have a sense of your need, right? So I wonder like, where do you see yourself in this text? Because we should, (laughs) I know I do, I'm sure you do. Where do you see yourself in this text? When are you prone to take God's love for granted? When are you prone to forget just how faithful God has been to you? How are you prone to be forgetting God's love in your life? And again, I bet if you're anything like me, you're just like the congregation here in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. It's when we're comfortable. It's when we don't feel our need for God that we're prone to forget God's great love for us. That's especially so, isn't it, when you're really healthy. Think about when you're sick. And I'm not saying that flippantly. Stomach flu, 24-hour, sick, stage four cancer, sick. You know how much you need God, don't you? Do you feel that same depth of need when you're healthy? Probably not. Do you feel, are you prone to forget God's great love when your possessions are increasing? When inflation is low? When you're advancing in the world? When your level of income is increasing and your level of spending is increasing? When you're living your hashtag best life now, right? That's when we're prone to forget God's love. Maybe as you're nearing retirement, when your investment portfolio is crushing it and it's going against the trends of the market. Man, I'm feeling really secure. You start to forget God's love for you. We start to forget God's love when the comforts of this world start to numb our hearts to God's word and God's ways. Again, we're just like the audience here in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. And I just want us to be really clear on this. You'd see this if we had time to study it more here across Deuteronomy, across scripture. Don't misunderstand. Like riches aren't bad. Money is not the problem. But riches are bad when they work to numb our hearts to God's love and begin to shift our identity and our satisfaction to the hope and security of wealth and the promise that the good life delivers. That's when that little shift starts to happen and you start to forget God's great love for you. Again, that's what we're seeing right here on the pages of scripture in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. And that's again how our hearts work too. Let's just, again, reflect on this. This is applied to the original audience. 
and then we're on this side of the cross. How does it apply to us now? Just think about us in this room, Gresham, Oregon, in the United States of America in 2023. We are the richest people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. If you don't think you need this warning, you're lying to yourself. You are lying to yourself. Riches are not bad, but when riches interact with our hearts, we're prone to forget God's love. So are the comforts in your life numbing your heart to the love of God? And how do you even know when that's happening? The reason why we're called to remember lest we forget. So I want to ask you to reflect today, reflect on this personally over these next few days, reflect on it together as a church family. Where are you forgetting God's love and faithfulness in your life? And why is that? Because again, we're made of the same stuff as the original audience with hearts that need to remember, especially when we're prone to trust in the idol of comfort. C.S. Lewis spoke to this dynamic we see in our passage. Listen to the warning Clive Staples Lewis gives to God's people. Beware of making your way in the world lest the world be making its way in you. It's kind of like that, isn't it? So God's people were to remember God's love so that the temporary comforts, their full stomachs, their nice houses with lots of shiplap, and actually that's kind of true when you get to the minor prophets, shiplap distract you from the love of God sometimes, just FYI. Well, when your stomach's full, you're in a nice house, you're prone to forget. They were also commanded to remember so that they have humble hearts. Just look real quick at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 8. There the people are warned that as they grow in prosperity, they better be careful. They better like be sensitive to what's happening and remember it's God who is the true source who meets their needs. So God's people are to respond to God's great love by remembering for a purpose. There's a why behind it. Remember so that comfort doesn't blind them spiritually, so that it doesn't blind us spiritually. And remember so that God's people cultivate humble hearts. That's what you see in verses 17 and 18. You have to remember God's love to be humble. Otherwise, you're going to boast in your own power and your own might. So God's people are to respond to God's great love by remembering that God is the true source and they're to live in response to his love by being a holy kind of people. All right, Deuteronomy 7 and 8, it's taking us somewhere, right? It brings us somewhere. Just think about this. Will the original audience here in Deuteronomy truly listen to Moses' series of sermons? Will they be a holy people in response to God's love as they live in the promised land? Will they remember? And that brings us to verses 19 and 20 that are going to give a very, very stern and harsh and sobering warning of what will happen if they aren't holy, if they forget. So look with me in the Bible in front of you, chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. And again, just imagine the original audience hearing Moses preach this to them as they're ready to enter the promised land. What did Moses preach? Verse 19, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. 
like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Just think about this with me. That had to be really jarring to them. They've been hearing all this stuff about God loves you just because he loves you. He's gonna provide for you just like he did when he delivered you from Egypt. And whoa, 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 whoa. There's this stern of a warning. If you forget me, you're gonna perish just like all the other nations God has cleared the way with for them to enter the promised land. That had to be jarring for them. Remember, like this is a series of sermons. If they're taking notes like some of you are, they just took notes and they're like, wait, that doesn't connect with what we just heard a few minutes ago. At the end here, God is warning them against idolatry, that if they leave their first love by going after other gods, then they're going to perish. So the text brings us, it draws out, it highlights for us a question, attention that we have to ask. Which is it? <laughs> Is God's love unconditional, that he loves you just because he loves you? Or is God's love conditional, that you obey him and remember him perfectly in order to stay in his love? Which is it as they move into the promised land? And that brings us to our third and final emphasis today. How is all of this possible? How is it? Like, you got to be honest with this. How is it that God loves them just because he loves them and that God puts conditions of obedience on his love for them with stern, stern warnings attached to it, saying that if they do not fully obey his law, that they'll perish and that God will destroy them? Which is it? Are God's blessings unconditional or are his blessings conditional? There's so much good writing on this. I'm so many like commentaries and preachers that have lived for years. I'm just trying to like tee this up for us here. And then to also have in your mind, we know that this original audience that hears this sermon, are they going to fully obey what they've just been charged with? No. Later in Deuteronomy, God, even, God tells them prophetically through Moses, and all this stuff I've told you, you are going to fail in epic kind of ways. You are not going to fully obey me like this. So what are we to make of this now? And I want to show you briefly what we're to make of it and why it matters. Look back up, let your finger go back up to into chapter 7. Look at verses 10 and 11. There, God says he will destroy those who don't keep his commandments. So again, this puts us, puts them in a significant bind, puts us in a significant bind in some kind of way, because none of us, fully obey God, like verse 11 there in chapter 7 calls for. So as people, because we don't fully obey, wouldn't you agree with me? Like we're desperately in need of God's unconditional love, aren't we? But it can't be based on our ability to perfectly meet God's conditions, can it? So like, what are you supposed to do with this? In Intel, right? There's a path forward. That's what Deuteronomy is doing for us here. It points us forward. It's anticipating something for God's people, isn't it? Because it's not until the person and work of Jesus Christ that we see how this tension, how this problem is resolved. The question of, is God's love unconditional or conditional? So just think with me briefly. 
reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about, think about the cross, then look down in your Bible at verses 10 and 11. What's it say? You could read it as a description of what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus took the penalty for my sin of your sin in our place, and then what happened? On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God, wasn't he? He was abandoned. On the cross, Jesus is being destroyed, just like verse 10 promised. There's a reason why darkness fell on the cross. What does verse 10 and 11 say? Like God's gonna do this destroying in a personal kind of way. And Jesus cries out on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then darkness falls. Deuteronomy 10 and 11 are pointing us to the cross. But then also like just let your mind and your heart feel the glory and the wonder and the weight of verse 11 because Jesus is the only one who ever ever fulfilled the call of verse 11 for perfect obedience. Like it's been said that Jesus is the only person in human history who earned the blessings of covenant obedience and yet at the end of his life he goes to the cross and takes the curse of covenant disobedience. That's how great God's love is. And the only way you can fully know an answer is God's love unconditional or conditional is fixing your eyes the, on the author and perfecter of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross for you because <laughs> you do not meet the conditions of God's unconditional love. So in other words, Jesus is destroyed in our place. So because of Jesus... And I don't mean this in like a Sunday school answer, like, yeah, Mike, yep, because of Jesus. No, really, like the Bible, the proof of the Bible in front of you. Because of Jesus, there is no contradiction in God's love being unconditional or conditional because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the conditions so that God can love you unconditionally. Do you see the depths and the glory and the wonder of God's love being set on you from the all-sufficient God and the glory and wonder of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of stuff you're gonna be worshiping him for together with all the saints who've ever gone before you from every tongue and nation and tribe like 10 billion years from now. This should do something in us now. This means that the love of God the loves us just because he loves us, just because he loves us kind of stuff is most clearly seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 puts it like this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross is the ultimate proof of God's holiness, of his conditional kind of love, of his law, and the cross is also the greatest proof of God's unconditional love. That's how loving God is. So because of the cross, if you're a Christian, you can trust, like you can know that you know that you know. When you fail to obey God, when you fail to meet his conditions to trust him and follow him and avoid the comfort of idolatry and stay humble, when you forget that stuff, you can know that when you fail to meet his conditions, he loves you still because you're in Christ. So his love for you is unconditional.
Jesus paid the conditions of God's law so that you can truly live in the unconditional love of God. So what are the implications of this for our lives today? How do we apply this as God's people here and now as Gresham Bible Church, as individual Christ followers? We have to apply the radical reality of God's love to our hearts too. That's where Moses preaching this sought to apply it to God's people then and where we need it as God's people now. So as we move to a close, I just wanna like welcome us into considering together how are we to respond to the nature and power and glory and beauty and wonder of God's love. So first, like you'll hear us say often at Gresham Bible Church, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we're really glad you're here. I hope you're hearing me today of who God is and how great his love is. So I'd ask you to consider these things. Consider the fullness of God's love. Consider how Jesus Christ demonstrated the love of God. And maybe even ask yourself why you have such deep, deep longings for the love of God. And I would suggest to you, that's not a flaw, that's a design feature. Why do you have that deep hunger and appetite in your life? Like your hunger for food is supposed to point you to food. Why do you have an appetite for deep, true, unconditional love? So let me encourage you, if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, today would be the perfect day to repent of your sins, to come to Jesus and trust your life to him for the forgiveness of your sins, of not perfectly obeying God, just like all of us, of loving other things more than God, and then entrust yourself to Jesus Christ to be fully known and fully loved. I don't want this to sound like background noise here at GBC. Maybe you've heard that a hundred times. Maybe today is the day where you pass from death to life. So talk to someone about the love of God. Christian, for those of us here, I'd encourage you, me, to confess and repent as well in view of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8. I want to lovingly challenge, confront, and encourage us to comfort us with the love of God and its implications for our lives today. On this side of the cross, a few things for me to lay before you pastorally for you to consider Christian and for us as a church. Confess with me that you far too easily forget the love of God. You forget, you assume, you take for granted how great it is. Confess you're prone to let comfort numb you to trusting and obeying God. Confess we're too easily satisfied with the idol of comfort rather than with the love of God. Confess you're prone to pride and taking credit for whatever successes are in your life rather than letting the reality of God's love cultivate deep, deep humility in your life. Confess that too often your foundational identity is based in other things than the love of God in Christ Jesus. Confess you're prone to base your relationship with Jesus 
more on what you're doing for him. Like Jesus is going to call you in for your annual performance review. And you're going to get put on probation if you don't have an awesome performance review. Confess of that. Ask yourself, why do I have to try to prove myself to God to earn or to keep his love for me? Instead, ask God today to revive you and refresh you with his perfect love. A love, again, that flows from the very character of our all-sufficient God and is demonstrated perfectly and gloriously through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So apply God's unconditional love to your conditional kind of heart today and let it change you again. Remember, trust, and obey because of how good and great and loving our God is. Let God's love melt you afresh. Let it refresh you, revive you, restore you to live your life in God's great love as we move towards our eternal promised land of the new heavens and new earth. Remember, God loves you just because he loves you. And that has significant applications for our lives today. Please bow your heads together with me in prayer. Father, we praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We praise you that your love being set on us is not because of anything in us, but it is because of your great love. So we confess and repent today of being far too easily pleased with lesser loves. Reorder our hearts so that you are our first love because of your great love for us. Renew us, restore us, revive us. Father, I pray that you will grow and strengthen this church in view of your great love. May your gospel advance and may your name be glorified. Father, may we as a church grow in holiness in finding our deepest identity in your love. May we love you because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.